Now, as we come to First Peter chapter three, and we come to this new section where Peter is beginning to give a bit of more broad instruction uh, regarding those both inside the church and those outside the church. Thus far, what we've heard from Peter is that he wants to give a message to uh, this group of Christians. Of course, we've said in the past that what he, the group that he's writing to are uh, a group of Christians who are scattered uh, throughout a region. This is how, of course, he opens the book, uh, you know, saying that this is to those who are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, he's writing to this, this group of Christians, and this group, they are experiencing hardship, they're experiencing difficulties uh, in their lives, they're experiencing oppression, uh, they're experiencing persecution, they're experiencing injustice. And so when you're in the middle of those things, what you're looking for really is a lifeline. You're looking for something to encourage you, and you're looking for something to help you see that there is a way forward. And, and so what, what Peter's done is he's written to encourage this group. He's written to remind them that they are members of the household of faith, that they belong to God, that they are his children. And he's done this uh, quite simply in the beginning of uh, chapter 1 by reminding them that they're born again to a living hope. He reminds them that they have an inheritance that is incorruptible, that's undefiled, that is unfading. He, he lays this out and says, here's who you really are, that this, these riches in Christ, they belong to you. But because of that, he goes on, uh, down in verse 13 of chapter 1, he begins to lay out his case that this group of people, Christians, they, because they are God's people, they are called to live as God's people, to be holy. They are called to, to take on the character that God uh, has in himself. Uh, he, he roots this quite simply in a command. We look in uh, chapter 1 and uh, verse 18 here. You shall be holy for I am holy. We are to be like God because we are children of God. We are to take on his character. And then as we move to chapter 2, what he does here is he gives us uh, the, the true nature of the people of God. He says, once you guys were not a people, once you were dead in your sins, once you were alienated from God, but now you are being built up through the work of Christ at the cross. You are being built up into a new people, a new nation, a holy people. More than that, you are a spiritual household. You are this group who are being assembled into this spiritual building in which Christ indwells. And that purpose of that building, you know, we're told, is for the declaration of the praise of God. That we are uh, to be a people who are coming together for the purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It is our job as his people, because we belong to him, because we take on his character, because we're called to live holy, we are then to proclaim his praises, his excellencies, all that he is. And then as he gives us this instruction, as we move into uh, the end of chapter 2 and into the beginning of chapter 3, he comes to the section that tells, here's how we ought to live. He gives us some ways that we ought to submit to authority, you know, the government and uh, these uh, roles of those who are ruling over you. Uh, he gets quickly to some of these roles that are spelt out in chapter 3 about, about how 
uh, husbands and wives can honor the Lord. But now, as he's uh, looked at several of these things within the household code, as he's looked at several of these ways that we interact with authority in our lives, he comes now back to giving us a, a broader brush by which he applies some of these uh, circumstances, how we ought to live in difficulty. Because what he's rightly done is he's acknowledged that sometimes like the government is not good. Sometimes they're not, they're not doing what they should be doing. And sometimes, uh, you know, there are those who rule over you that uh, are asking you to do sinful things or they're, they're causing you to or wanting you to, to act um, unjustly. But he says in those instances, we ought to obey God rather than man. But when you do that, we're told that you will experience hardship and difficulty. And so for a group of people who are experiencing hardship and difficulty, he's telling them you're about to head into more, potentially, as you try to live in a way that is holy. Things could get more difficult for you. And so we come to our text this morning, and now he begins to kind of give us some insight, some characteristics of how we ought to live as Christians, how we ought to endure suffering, how we ought to be able to make it through this life and not get beat up. Now, he does this, first off, with an address to the whole community of believers. As we look at verse 8, here is what Peter writes. He says this, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter's call here is to the whole community. He's addressing it to everyone, all of you, all of these readers, all of those who are, who are at these churches in, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, all who are readers of this letter to the church that is both in uh, times past and times present, all of us. We are all addressed here. Here's how we ought to live as God's people. Here's what he says is how our relationship should be within the church. He says, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now, what Peter's saying here is this. When you obey these things, when you participate in these things, when you take heed and you have unity of mind, when you have sympathy, when you have brotherly love, when you have a tender heart, when you have a humble mind, what this leads to, of course, is uh, smooth relationships within, within the church. And, you know, by nature, you're also going to have probably pretty smooth relationships outside of the church. I, I don't know anyone who looks at this and was like, oh, I, you know, I wish that uh, you know, people didn't have so much sympathy on me or they didn't treat me with brotherly love. No, as we read this, we're all like, yeah, that would be great if everyone treated me that way. But one of the issues that we face today is that a lot of times within the church, we, we don't treat each other this way. We don't look upon each other and have sympathy or have brotherly love towards one another. We don't have a tender heart. We're not operating in humility a lot of times. And it's important that we, hear, that we hear Peter's words this morning, his call to this, because what Jesus said is that people would know that we're Christians by the way that we love one another, by the way that we interact with one another in a kind and gentle way. 
and the way that we uh, work together. This is important for us to participate in these things. First, he says here that we should have unity of mind. Now, it's important for us to note here that there's a difference between uh, everything being uniform and being united. Those are two different things, being uniform. Uniform is everything's exactly the same. It's all a pattern, right? When you go to uh, your job, they probably have a uniform that you're supposed to wear. You're supposed to look a certain way. You have to have a specific dress code that you're supposed to abide by. They want you to be in a certain uniform. This is, the, of course, the circumstance that we find with uh, the military They're issued these uniforms. And what that is meant to uh, highlight is that there is one mind, but what it's also meant to highlight is that there is no individuality within this group. Everyone here is to operate as a unit. Now, unity is different because it allows for this individuality, which the Bible tells us that we have. It tells us that we are all members of a different, of the same body, having different roles to serve one another. And that one part of the body really is in a difficult position when that member is not using their gifts to serve the body. So it's not uniformity within the body, it's unity within the body. We have one mind, unity of mind. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter uh, 15, verse 5. He says this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord accord with Christ Jesus. Right? So first he says he wants you to live in such harmony with one another, side by side with one another, not completely the same. Not everyone's making the same meals and having the same house and having everything completely the same, but rather the same focus, the same goal. Here he gets to the goal in verse 6 of Romans 15, that together, right, here it is, this unity of mind, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he says here is God's glory is our goal, that we are working together to have this unity of mind where we're seeing Jesus glorified. That we're operating in such a way where the parameter by which we are making our decisions is not, will this be the same as someone else, but rather, will this give an opportunity for God to be glorified in our lives? That's going to look different for different people. Right? We have Jesus telling the parable of this uh, very poor woman. And she comes and she puts her, her... last little bit of money into the into the tithe box there at the temple right and then we have another guy who shows up who's super rich and he's like blowing a trumpet and he's got like his dump truck of money he's like shoveling it in there and making like this big deal he's like dancing around like making a big show of it and what jesus says words there is like who do you think there was more honoring to the lord who do you think is more sincere in their faith Who do you think is giving God more glory? And of course, we're meant to see that it's this woman who gave everything that she had. It wasn't the amount, but it was the motive of the heart. Each person is going to be put in a different situation. That woman couldn't give a truckload of money because she didn't have a truckload of money to give. 
but rather it was this uniqueness of her circumstance, of her situation, in which she seeks to glorify the Lord. And so there's not uniformity that we're uh, trying to work towards, but unity, unity of mind. One purpose that we, brings us together, God's glory. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, he, he appeals to this church. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. You be united in the same mind and the same judgment. But what Paul's emphasis there in both passages is this, that the church should work together to be in agreement and not have division. We should work together for the purpose of seeing God glorified. Now, there are many small decisions that we'll have to make and many uh, things that will come about, but as we work together, as we make decisions, we are working to see that God is most glorified in our decisions and our actions. We have to stay focused on this goal because there have been many churches in the past that have gotten into like all sorts of trouble over like people getting in arguments over like the color of the carpet and they need to buy new chairs and like I don't like the style of the chairs and like just all sorts of dumb stuff like that that doesn't even matter. People having like these strong opinions about that. It doesn't have a, a bearing on uh, on creating unity. In those instances, we see that identities are starting to be built on other things rather than Christ. And what we want to work together in is unity of mind. Now, the second thing that Paul tells, or Peter tells us is that we ought to uh, have sympathy as well. Christians are to be sympathetic. And we should care deeply about the needs, trials, sufferings, joys, sorrows of others. Quite simply, in Romans uh, 12, he says this, something we say often, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We're not there to discount someone else's circumstance, their situation, but to enter into their hardship with them, to enter into their joy with them, right? Isn't that what Jesus has done with us? He's entered into our difficulty, giving his life. He didn't have those problems, but he entered into our realm in order to identify with us and to help us live according uh, to the spirit and not according to the flesh. He entered in so that he would give his life for us. And so we want to be faithful, to be sympathetic, to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. As we were saying earlier, when Paul remarks about this, these different members of the body, not being uniform, but having unity. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, if one member of the body suffers, then they all suffer together. We all suffer. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. Because as we're one, we have to go and meet the needs and, and hear where everyone's at. To identify the issues and problems. And if someone's discouraged, we need to provide encouragement. If someone is celebrating, we need to go and celebrate. It's not that there's one way specifically, but we need to 
be aware. Now, here's the deal. Real talk. If you're someone who's discouraged, you have to tell the body that you're discouraged because we sometimes don't know. We can't just help you if you don't say, like, here's where I'm at. We want to help, but we can't do our job if we don't know that you're dealing with difficulties, if you're dealing with hardship. You can't keep it to yourself. There's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian, so you can't just be all off on your own. If you have an issue, you need to share it so that way we can come and love you well. If you have something to celebrate, you need to share it so we can come and celebrate together. Okay? So church, we're going to try to do our job to love people well. But if you're dealing with something, you also need to share so we can make sure we're doing our job. Because we want to be faithful on both ends. Let's work on this together. The third thing uh, Peter tells us is that we ought to have brotherly love towards one another. The love that we have within the family of God. It's important. right? Peter's remarked about this several times throughout uh, his book in chapter 1, verse 22, and chapter 2, uh, you know, verse 17, he remarks about it. Um, quite simply, he says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood. This love that is specific for the church. It's because we're all in the family of God together. We're, we're all here on the basis of grace, that none of us deserve to be here. But because of Christ's work, we're all belonging to him. And so we ought to love the same people that Jesus loves, the church. He's, he's brought us all together, and so we ought to be faithful to love one another. The fourth thing that Peter remarks upon his fourth characteristic that he gives us is that we ought to have a tender heart. Or maybe in your translation, it might say like compassionate. Similar. We're to be tender hearted. To be aware of one another. Not when people tell us where they're at, like, you know, like, oh, that's really difficult. Thanks. Like, hope you hope that's better. But to, to enter into uh, that circumstance alongside them. Paul, in Colossians chapter 3, uh, gives us this command. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. It's the very first, things, first thing that he lists. Compassionate hearts. And then he says, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. He leads off with this, uh, this idea that we are recognizing that we are just as in need as other people. That we're not better than others. We're not more elite. That this doesn't put us in a, a, an upper echelon or greater hierarchy, but rather we are here to come to the aid of those who need it, that we would be tender in heart, that we would be easily, um, that our consciences, that our heart would be uh, easily receptive to the needs of others, not that we would just have to be convinced, but that we would be willing to hear the needs of others. Finally, he finishes 
the last character that he puts forth here, that we are to be of a humble mind. We're called to be humble. Of course, he roots this in the example of Christ. A humble mind. This means that we consider others more important than ourselves. This doesn't mean that you are uh, diminishing your, your worth. It doesn't mean that you're diminishing your worth. It's important that we, we kind of draw these, uh, this differentiation because a lot of times when we think about like, oh, this means like you put yourself down and you're real self-deprecating, being like, oh, yeah, like I'm the worst. And like you say like all this stuff that, um, you know, about yourself that, that makes you look bad. But the way that true humility works is it stands in the basis of being fully accepted by God, knowing that you've done nothing to be accepted. It's all the work of Christ. You're, you're not saying like, oh, you know, like I'm not deserving. You're not. No one is. You're not deserving of God's grace. No one is. You're not trying to put yourself down more, but rather you're trying to put more effort into thinking about others. You're still at the same standing as you were with the Lord, fully adopted, fully accepted, fully loved completely. But yet, instead of thinking about yourself, you are now focused on others. Jesus did this, and of course, this is the pattern from which Peter thinks in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, in the great Christ hymn, Paul writes this, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, here's what it looks like, count others more significant than yourselves. That's exactly what Jesus did. He laid aside his rights so that through his poverty we might become rich. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so we are to be humble in mind. Not only in that we are considering the interests of others, that we are thinking of others more importantly than ourselves, but also that we're not controlled by a prideful identity that we're shaping on our own, that we are operating in the identity that Christ gives. Pride doesn't control our lives. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, a, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Right? So Paul starts out here and he says, look, I want you to walk. I want you to act like Christians. I want you to live in this specific way. And he starts off, first trait, with all humility. No pride. Nothing there that seeks entitlement, that seeks uh, its own. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You see, he leads off here with this humility 
Because what, he, what, what it leads to is that when you are humble, when you recognize your need, then it's pretty hard, you know, to be rough with others. You end up being gentle. You end up being patient with others. You end up bearing with one another in love because you know how much you've been forgiven. You know. You're not entitled. You're here on the basis of grace. And so we have this call that Paul begins with in verse 1, to have unity of mind and also to have humility. They kind of bookend this, this first exhortation for us. They belong together. When you're acting in humility, you can have unity in mind. And the way to have unity in mind is to operate in humility. Now, Peter directs our attention to how believers should respond to those who mistreat them. How Christians should deal with those who uh, come against us, who, who act unjustly towards us. In verse 9, he goes on and he says this. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So there are those who seek to insult and injure, who who seek to oppress and persecute, who act unjustly towards Christians. And Peter says this, we should not repay that with evil. When they act in evil towards us, we should not respond with evil. When, uh, When people revile us, we should not revile in return. Now, Peter says an interesting word here. He comes back to the word revile, and we've talked about this already in 1 Peter chapter 2. He's already said this, and the reason he says it this way is because what he's calling us back to is the example of Christ. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 23, Peter says this regarding Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. What Peter says here is essentially, you need to be like Jesus. Because Jesus was reviled, but he didn't revile in return. Jesus was treated unjustly, but he didn't threaten. He didn't act out towards those. He didn't respond in kind. What did Jesus do? He prayed. He asked that the Lord would forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. They weren't aware. They didn't have the full understanding, the insight. More than that, Peter's, Peter's emphasis here is rooted in Jesus' own teaching. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says this, Bless those who curse you. When those who are coming against you with evil, Jesus' words are, bless them. Bless those who curse you, he says. Pray for those who abuse you. Jesus does this. Verse 29 of Luke 6. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. What Jesus is doing there is he's saying, like, look, you, you don't need to protect yourself. You don't need to feel entitled. If they want to treat you that way, then let them treat you that way and offer up to them. You don't want to produce resistance. This is where Peter comes when he says, do not repay evil for evil. This is where he gets it. Or reviling for reviling. But then he says, on the contrary, 
On the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Christians are called to bless others. We are called to bless others. And what Peter means here is not that you're just walking around like saying weird stuff to people because that sounds strange. But what he's actually looking at here is that he's asking that, or he's instructing us to really pray for those who are seeking to harm us, to invest spiritually in those who are bringing hardship upon us, who are oppressing us, who are injuring us. We instead come and instead of responding in evil and reviling, we want to pray for those who have come against us. This is the way that Christians ought to live. We've been called by God to bless others so that we might inherit the blessing of eternal life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We've been made free, we've been made the children of God, but use this as an opportunity for love, not for evil. Now he goes on, to give an example, because it's always helpful to hear an example when you're someone who's experiencing a hardship, a difficulty. It's always, it's always helpful to, to see someone who's gone before you and has come out the other side. You're like, oh, okay, okay, it's going it's to be fine, right? I know that this is exactly how I am, right? When uh, I had to get like a dental procedure done, you know, like a year ago, and and I didn't know anything about it. And then I was like, oh, man, like, I don't know if, how do I trust this person. Like, I was, like, all worried about it. And so, like, I, like, went online and I was, like, looking at, like, here's how the research goes, you know. And then I started, like, looking into the doctor. And I was like, oh, like, it seems like he's, like, has a lot of experience. Started, like, researching and getting more info. And, and, and eventually I was encouraged enough, like, oh, okay, like, this guy, like, he's done good. Like, he hasn't been sued. Like, Okay, like I'm gonna be okay. Like I know what the procedure is gonna be like before and after. And I asked all my questions to him. I had this, I had this example to look at, and and even there, like on the morning of like going to get the procedure done, like I'm sitting there, and you know they had me on like some pills, so I was like feeling a little bit weird, anyways. <laughs> but as I was sitting there, people are coming out, and I'm like, oh yeah, that guy, that person seems fine. <laughs> like they're okay. Like they did good. All right, here comes another person. Okay, yeah, they're good too. Oh, okay, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be good. I had this, I had this. Uh, encouragement, this example that I could see that other people had gone before me. They've had success. And they came out the other side. And what Peter does here is he says, who's really had a hardship? Who's really had a difficulty? Who, who has really gone through some things that I can put forth for these people? Well, he's already given Jesus as an example. He's already given Jesus as the one who has been reviled against, but yet in turn did not revile now he turns to the psalmist, David. In verse 10, he begins to quote Psalm 34. Now, we talked about this on Friday. In the context of Psalm 34, is David's, he's, he's in some trouble. He's on the run. Someone's out to kill him. And he goes, but like David just gets himself into some real dumb trouble. Because what happens before this, if you, you, you can read about it in Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 21, 
David's on the run. Saul's trying to kill him. Then he, like, goes and he, like, raids the temple and, like, takes all the bread he's not supposed to take. And he takes, like, Goliath's sword. Uh, and then he, he takes that sword and then he runs to the city that Goliath is from and then realizes, like, oh, maybe he's got himself in some trouble. And so then he begins to act like a crazy person, so much so that the king's like, get this guy out of here. Just, he's, you know, he puts himself in a real awkward position where Saul wants to kill him. If, if he is there captured in, in Gath, he's going to get killed there. He finds himself in this difficulty where, like, a lot of people want to kill him. A lot of people want to do harm towards him. But yet there, he's, we see in Psalm 34, David is, is declaring his trust for the Lord. That it's the Lord who will deliver him. And so Peter here takes that circumstance, that situation. Israel's, one of uh, Israel's greatest kings, and he says, look, guys, here's how the Lord was faithful to David. Here's what he's done. He begins to, to use uh, these four verses here to encourage them. Because these verses, they speak to the, the situation, the circumstance that Peter's readers are facing. Verse 10, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Right? Just in that opening phrase, it's already telling us, Here's some practical ways. If you want to make it to the end, if you want to love life, if you want to see these good days. Now, when the original psalmist wrote, what he was experiencing was just like trying to live on a daily basis. But when, when Peter writes, when Peter writes, what he's doing is he's, he's kind of taking this psalm and applying it to the current situation for his readers. These hardships that you're experiencing, these difficulties that you're experiencing, they... Uh, if you endure them, they result in the promise of an internal inheritance. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Peter's not promising good days in the world because, like, they're experiencing persecution. There's trouble to be expected. But rather, he's saying there's a promise of inheritance. And so you're to keep your tongue from, from evil, your lips, from speaking forth deceit, right? Doing these things, speaking forth evil, participating in that, we're already told, don't return evil for evil. Refrain from that. But he says we should do this so that we obtain, we obtain this inheritance, eternal life. Now, as we look at that, we kind of do have to acknowledge here that it does look a little bit like, if you do this, then I'll give you this. This isn't works-based salvation that he's getting at, though. Peter's not saying, well, here's what you need to do. You need to not say these things. You need to not act this way. And if you don't act this way, then, like, here's the reward that is at the end for you. What Peter's instead wanting to emphasize is this. If you belong to God, you won't act this way. If you belong to him, you are his, his child. If you've received new life from God, then you're going to live a transformed life. And you're going to live in such a way that provides evidences that you are a Christian, that you are a part of the family of God. He goes on and he gives us a little bit more of Psalm 34. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. 
The Christian life is not one of passive uh, involvement, but rather, Peter says here with David, action, action, action. He's just about that action, boss. He wants you to move into a position of participation. You can't do good through inaction. If he says here, turn away from evil and do good, you can't just do nothing. You have to participate. It takes intention, effort, planning. First, you must turn away from evil. It's something you have to focus on. And then you have to purpose to do good. Which is hard when people are coming after you. When people are making your life difficult. But he says this. Seek peace and pursue it. Your doing good should be focused on seeking peace and putting this effort towards, towards it, pursuing it. This peace can only come about through Jesus. It can only come about if, as Christians, we have peace within the family of God, we operate within the family of God well, we deal with each other as brothers and sisters, as we love each other faithfully, we don't insult and revile each other, we don't act in evil towards each other, if we operate on the basis of grace with one another. Turn away from evil. Do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And then we end here in verse 12. Where Peter continues this from, from Psalm 34. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So Peter just simply says this. Here's why it's important that you have this good character, why you have this good behavior. It results in God hearing your prayer. It results in the favor of God, that you show that you belong to him. You receive this inheritance. When God hears your prayers, it demonstrates that you are a member of his household. Now, on the other side, we're told that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, who participate in evil. There is opposition. God's character is love and kindness and gentleness. And he has come to defeat evil. And as such, his children also ought to do good, to seek peace, to pursue it, not to participate in evil, not to facilitate evil, not to uh, allow evil to happen through inaction, but rather we should take advantage of the access that we have to God. Because when you're in the middle of hardship and suffering, it's easy to feel like there's a lot of evil out there. There's a lot of difficulty out there. 
we have to remember this. It's not our job. It's not our job to have to go out there and defeat every form of evil. We have to know Jesus, to enjoy him, to be with him, and to let his character so work within us that we become influential to others. And as we collectively see Jesus, then we work to see uh, to seek peace together, to pursue it together. And systematically, we move through and we see evil overcome with good. We see it overcome because of Christ's faithfulness, not because of our ingenuity or our good ideas, but because Christ has been faithful. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't see evil, see difficulties, see hardships, and call it out and recognize it for what it is. It simply means that our strength in itself is, is we don't need to amass some weird sort of effort, some weird army. And of course, we want to call out those things that are um, against God's character, against his nature, against his commands. We want to identify those things because the enemy often uses them as traps. But we want to take those things to recognize them for what they are, to warn the family of God, to make each other aware, and then learn how we ought to follow God into ministering to those needs. And so it's our job to be united in mind. That's our focus. United in mind. Together with one voice working to glorify the Lord. It's our core purpose. This is what First Peter, uh, you know, First Peter 2 tells us. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's our job. Proclaimers of his excellencies. So let's pray. We'll respond. And we'll do just that. Lord, we are thankful for your work, for your love, and for your kindness. We're thankful that you have brought us near to you through your blood at the cross. And Lord, now we want to respond and worship. We want to respond um, and celebrate all that you are. Thank you, Lord, for saving us and for bringing us into your family. And we pray that you would uh, turn our hearts now to focus upon you. Give us... Um, Give us insight, Lord, by your Holy Spirit into the things that um, we need to work on in our lives that are keeping us from uh, unity of mind. Lord, perhaps we are pursuing uniformity more than unity of mind. And Lord, we want to um, be united in mind. We want to have sympathy and brotherly love. 
We want to be tender-hearted towards one another. Lord, we want to, uh, to learn how to be humble. And so, Lord, we look to you. As you uh, embodied all these things, we look to you, Lord, and, and Lord, we ask that you would show us, Lord, those characteristics in your life and how you have um, so perfectly lived them out, Lord, through your obedience, through your death, through your resurrection. And so, Lord, um, we want to set our eyes upon you now. Call us to respond in worship, Jesus. We love you. Amen.